Hello, welcome to the March 14th The Nutritionist webinar. I'm Marianne Fessenden from AMTS. In this, our fifth season, we are welcoming a growing panel of co-hosts. As from the beginning, Paula Torillo from Athena in Argentina translates into Spanish. We are happy to work once again with Marcelo Ramos from 3R Lab in Brazil, broadcasting in Portuguese. We have our China AMTS distributor, Sean Lee from AnsiTech, and separately, Tom Long from Hemingway, both providing translation into Mandarin. Our Russian and Italian distributors, Vadim Bakchevnikov of Nova Lab and Elena Bonfante of Dairy Innovations Italia, host from Russia and Italy, respectively. As a new feature of the webinars, we are offering two times to listen and so have pre-recorded the introductions and presentations. Our speakers join us for the live question period immediately following the presentation. Depending on how you are listening, you can submit queries through me or one of my attending co-hosts. Later, a complete recording of archived webinars as well as a question and answer session for each will be available on the AMTS website. For those of you who would listen to the presentation while driving, we have converted the videos into MP3 files that can be downloaded to your device for offline listening. Those podcasts can be found at the Ag Model Systems website under the Webinar tab or Resources tab. This month, we are very pleased to host once again Dr. Michael Van Amberg, Cornell University. We have featured Mike in webinars in the past discussing the CNCPS system and forage digestibility. Today's webinar is focused on calf feeding. He's going to discuss the importance of colostrum and give some new thought to colostrum feeding recommendations beyond the first 12 hours. He presents some of the research his group has been doing in early life management of nutrients. So at this point, please sit back and enjoy the presentation. It's going to run for about an hour and get your questions ready. They can be keyed into the chat or the Q&A sections on your webinar tab. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm uh, going to talk to you tonight about uh, colostrum and uh, factors in colostrum mostly way beyond um, the immunoglobulins. And this is uh, an interesting area. There's a rich data set out there, many papers written uh, by a small group of people around the world over the last 30 years, most of the work done on short-term, on a short-term basis, you know, a one-day study, a two-day study, a five-day study. Um, and it isn't until recently that we, we started to take this data and look more longitudinally towards, um, you know, what is the long-term impact on a calf? And I won't give a lot of answers to that tonight, uh, but I'll give you some um, empirical data that says that colostrum is important for things other than immune system function, and I think that's the real take-home message uh, for what I'm going to talk, talk about. So a little bit of an overview, do an introduction, um, effects out of colostrum on growth and nutrient use. Uh, the role of colostrum in gastrointestinal tract uh, development, uh, colostrum components in the immune system, uh, how components of colostrum alter metabolism, um, and then I'll summarize um, that with some recommendations on colostrum feeding. So to get started, and I, for all the uh, 
whenever I'm doing calf and heifer talks anymore, I, I always want to start with this kind of big picture. What are our goals? And, and, um, you know, I'm not the only one that thinks about this. Uh, several people that I, I talk to and work with, we all have conversations about this, but, but rarely do I think we, uh, manage calves from birth with these goals in mind. Um, we might on a macro basis, but we don't on a, on a micro basis, right, with our day-to-day management. And Jason Carsey's and I um, spent some time on this. So some of the information here are things that Jason started and I've added to or we've, we've restructured in terms of some of the writing and thinking. But one of the goals, you know, of a heifer program is to raise – you know, the highest quality heifer to, to make the most money, right? To optimize profits when the animal enters the herd. Her job is to be the replacement. And that, that idea of a quality heifer is one of those things that's really hard to get your head around because it's kind of, uh, it's not uh, tangible, right? What do we mean by a quality heifer? And, and we get beat up uh, on this by dairy producers and because dairy producers say this, we need better quality heifers, right? Hey, Mike, we need a better quality heifer. And I'll say, great, what does that mean to you? <laughs> and sometimes, you know, they'll say she needs to make more milk, right, or be more efficient. Again, what we're really looking for is somebody that is a heifer that's going to make more money, right, for us over her lifetime. So, you know, and again, these we've – Redefine these things in our world. We think a quality heifer is an animal that, that carries no limitations, nothing that detracts from her ability to produce milk under the farm's management system. And then that begs the question: Then, what's a detractor? Right? And when can a detractor occur? And you know, if you asked, you know, what about pneumonia? Is pneumonia a detractor? And the answer is probably yes. Well, why is it a detractor? Well, it could be one of two reasons, right? It could be that pneumonia caused uh, permanent damage in the lung and that animal's never going to exchange enough CO2 and oxygen to, to, to meet her uh, genetic capacity for milk production. Or it could be that pneumonia made her feel bad for a short period of time and because when you don't feel bad, you don't eat as much. And then we know when we don't eat as much, what a calf doesn't eat as much and have as high enough gain that they don't make as much milk over their lifetime, right? And it could be both of those things, right? We also know now that from some of the work that's being done at Florida uh, with Jeff Dahl's group, uh, that heat stress in the dry period, 30 days prior to calving, has uh, an impact on the calf. And not only does it impact the cow, but it impacts the calf, kind of an epigenetic thing where those calves that are in a heat stress dam are born, they're lighter, they never grow as fast, they never make as much milk. So that detractor occurred before the animal was was born, right? And that, uh, so these detractors can occur anywhere. So we, we need to figure out how to minimize any of those things that detract from growth and health. That's really what it comes down to. And, you know, we want to optimize profits by obtaining the highest quality heifer at the lowest cost, usually in the least amount of time, right? And just recently there's a paper published in uh, or an article published in Hordes Dairyman in the last few days um, that suggests that, you know, we're, we're actually losing milk by calving our animals too early. And, again, this is one of those, you know, so we got the time thing right, but we're not getting the right heifer, right? And the uh, the 
the article's a little frustrating to me because they're confusing time with body weight. Well, if you're going to cab at 21 months, you got to meet some criteria for body weight. It can't be a passive outcome. And I think that's part of the problem here. So younger heifers are always the most productive heifers in the herd, have the greatest lifetime milk production. There's several studies now that show that. And in fact, this is even part of the genetic evaluations uh, from Holstein, where they've got uh, age of first calving in there now as one of their metrics uh, for productivity. Uh, but we still have to meet uh, certain uh, benchmarks for for uh, body weight, you know, doubling the birth weight, 82% of mature body weight post-calving for the first lactation. Those numbers are all important uh, to get that high-quality heifer and optimize profits. If you know nothing about a dairy herd, and, you know, so if I get asked uh, to walk onto a farm um, and evaluate a calf program or a heifer program, and I know nothing about it, I've never been there, these metrics that you see in this snapshot evaluation um, are a great place to start because it gives you some idea of what's going on, where the problem is, and how you might address it. So, you know, first calf heifer is treated as a calf for a heifer, less than 30%. We can have discussions about these numbers. But the point is, is that is there 100% of that occurring in 24, 24 hours to three months of age? Or is it evenly distributed between, you know, that first three months and uh, the four months to freshening period? Because depending upon where those treatments are at would tell you, you know, where you need to spend your time trying to fix the problem. If it's 24 hours to three months, uh, then we're looking at the calving pen, you know, we're looking at uh, the housing, we're looking at ammonia that might cause pneumonia. Um, we're looking at the weaning strategies, feeding rates, intake over maintenance, vaccinations. There's all these things, colostrum program. If it's four months to fresh, well, now we're, we're looking at bigger picture management and housing conditions. Why would they be treated as, uh, you know, pregnant heifers, and now we've got different reasons to be asking questions. DOAs are on there simply because this really describes protocol compliance, right? What is a DOA? When do you have them? Are you having a lot of them? Are there more males than females? If there's more male DOAs, this tells me that you've got a crew that's biased. Probably it's not that the male calves are that much larger that they're causing all the you know, dystocias and, and, and dead-on arrivals. Um, but getting this, knowing this and understanding when it occurs, is it due to a certain crew? Does it happen only at night? Things like that are important. And again, it just really is a way to think about protocol compliance and how well our people are trained to go in there and manage those, those cows that are calving. Where the money's being made is, are the next two metrics. First calf average peak. So first lactation average peak, first uh, lactation total yield at least 80% of mature. Here's where everybody's falling down, right? And today's talk is not going to get into this, although it is something that I think most of the industry is missing right now. In 22 out of 24 or 23 out of 25 case studies that we've done in the last five years with dairy fellows, only two herds have met that 80% of mature body weight uh, target. Almost everybody else is below that. When you hit that, making milk is really easy, especially when you think about the opportunity for how much milk that is. If you're 40% first lactation animals and you're only at 72% of mature milk on total yield, 
and you're a 90-pound herd, theoretically, um, that's probably about 8 to 11 pounds of milk that you're not realizing in those first lactation animals. It's not that they're not milking well. It's that you're, those animals are partitioning more nutrients towards growth, and they're gonna, that's going to take away from milk. So what it is is an unrealized opportunity. And there, that's where we have the chance to go in and, and actually help improve things. And most of this happens, most of this happens after you get the animals pregnant. And then there's all those other things there to see, culling, MEs, how many are treated during lactation. Everybody should be focused on 85% retention to the second lactation. If you're not doing that, you gotta figure out why and go in and fix the problem. But anyhow, this, this snapshot's very useful been around for many years within the ProDairy group. Uh, we developed it uh, probably 10, 12 years ago, but it's still quite useful. So one of the other questions whenever I'm giving a colostrum talk is bottle or tube feeder? So I pulled this one of the most recent papers on this out of the Journal of Dairy Science where they did three liters fed by bottle or fed by tube. And here you can see that bottle or tube, it didn't matter uh, when it came to serum IG levels. That in fact, uh, you could bottle a calf as long as you knew what you were doing, and you could tube a calf as long as you knew what you were doing, and you got the same amount of colostrum in there, and they're gonna, the calf is going to see the same amount of IG. So I, I get many questions about that. I just want to put that one to rest before we start so we can focus on other things. So where we're going is, so what happens? Uh, when do we have an opportunity to actually provide things in the milk to the calf other than nutrients? And that's usually right around the calving period, All right? So a cow dries off, she goes through involution, and then she has to go through the dry period and rebuild the gland and get ready for the next lactation. While she's doing that, she's pulling in some of these growth factors, regulatory factors um, that are needed uh, to rebuild the tissue. IGF-1 may be one of them. Um, we can talk about lots of different hormones and growth factors. And then she's, the animal's gonna calve in, and all those, a lot of those factors are in the colostrum, so that calf has an opportunity to consume those factors in the first uh, few days of lactation. In our case, in the case of our management, this isn't true. In the case of Mother Nature, this would be true. So a beef cow would have this opportunity. Dairy cows, dairy calves usually don't have this option because we don't provide colostrum to them for more than six hours or one day, right? And then once the animal, once the dam enters lactation, then you, she's going to go through typical lactogenesis, lact lactosynthesis, and we're going to see the normal lactation curve, and then she's going to dry off, and we're going to do this all over again. We're going to go through involution and then rebuild the tissue, and then one more time in the next lactation, you'll have the ability to transfer these components of colostrum. Uh, to the calf. And that, you know, leads to this topic of epigenetic programming that, that um, has been coined by a group of uh, swine physiologists, Skip Bartol, Carol Bagnell. They coined this term lactrican hypothesis. Uh, the idea is not new, but the term is kind of fun and useful. Um, and they wrote it into a paper in 2009, and, and the definition is maternal programming extended beyond the uterine environment through the ingestion of milk-borne morphological factors. And I added the last part, milk in this case can include colostrum. And um, this is a fascinating story for all animal scientists. Um, 
all animal scientists should read a few of these papers uh, because this shows, uh, you know, both the power of being persistent and um, the, what the ability or what the capacity for some of our new techniques are, like molecular techniques, even though that's kind of the standard fare today in science. Uh, when these guys were developing this idea and chasing after this, we didn't have some of the molecular techniques that we have today, and that's what makes this such an interesting thing. What they figured out is that independent of genetics, there were some, you know, sows that always had more baby piglets, right? They would have larger litters, right? So they're more reproductively efficient. And they, they looked for this effect, and they thought it was genetic, and they couldn't find a genetic linkage, and they finally realized that something environmental was doing it, and then what they finally hit on was that relaxin, the hormone produced by the uterus, uh, was transferred to the colostrum, the, the neonatal female piglets, uh, the ju juvenile uterus. They would consume this relaxin. The more relaxin they, they were able to get from their colostrum, the more colostrum they consumed, the greater the stimulation and development of the uterus. The piglets, females, would grow larger uteruses and then always uh, produce more babies. And when I asked Skip, you know, how does this happen? How much colostrum? He said the average piglet might get about 15 mils of colostrum. He said if we can get 30 mils of colostrum into them, then, you know, I can, I can ensure this kind of a response, right? And what they now know is that it mediates the expression of estrogen receptors and stimulates the growth and proliferation of the uterus. And, you know, in one of their papers, they've got a really nice cartoon here. This is a, another nice paper where they describe you know, the relaxamedans and how it binds, and, and then those relaxamedans bind to the epithelium, stimulate estrogen receptors. Estrogens can then bind and stimulate more development, and this is how proliferation takes place. And again, more relaxin, more estrogen receptors, greater growth, and these mammary factors are active for about three days, and then estrogen takes over, and then you've got all these other local microenvironment factors. So anyhow... Nice story, begs the question, what, uh, what are we doing in a calf, right? What, what is mom putting in calf's milk that might, or in colostrum, that might help stimulate the growth development and long-term capacity, the productivity of that calf, right? So that, you know, begs the question, what does mom want for her calf, right? And so here's a couple pictures. This will get everybody's attention. It always seems to set people back a little bit. Um, that's Arnold on the left. We don't want the calf to be the governor of, of anything. That is a female on the right, by the way. You know, all moms want their offspring to be better. They want them to grow and be healthy. There's a cheat a term I'm looking for in the, in the live audience. I would quiz everybody here. We don't have that option. There's a cheat on the slide in the lower left-hand corner. The word is anabolism, right? There's two things that should come to mind when you see these pictures. One is anabolic, and the other one might be steroids. So what mom wants is she wants them to grow and be healthy. She wants anabolism. The next question is, does she will do it with or without the steroids, right? Does, does the cow give her calf steroids? Again, this is generally a polling question. Half the people say yes. Half the people say no. The other half say they don't really care. Uh, but anyhow, let's see. So colostrum versus milk. 
We all know that there's a lot more energy in colostrum than mature milk because there's more fat and a little bit more protein, not that much lactose. If you look at uh, IGs, yes, of course, there's a lot more IGs in colostrum than milk. Lactoferrin, um, quite high in milk, quite high in colostrum compared to milk. The next one you see there is insulin, 65 micrograms uh, per liter versus about one in mature milk, so quite a bit of insulin. And bioactive insulin, prolactin is very high. Um, that's a fascinating hormone. I'd love to know where that goes. There is detectable growth hormone in the colostrum. There is a lot of IGF-1, 310 micrograms per deciliter, uh, and it's very potent. I'm going to share with you the role, uh, some of the roles of IGF-1 in the gastrointestinal tract here in just a few minutes. Leptin, TGF-alpha, um, all, all quite high, and leptin could play a role in the brain if managed to get there. Cortisol, of course, is quite high everywhere because this is how um, mom and baby were communicating about time to go. And then, of course, look at the estradiol. There is some estradiol in mature milk, but not nearly as much as there is in colostrum. So mom is sending pretty powerful biological signaling hormones and factors to the calf to help direct how it uses nutrients and help direct how it partitions nutrients. The question is, is what do all those things do? And are they all necessary? And I've come to believe that they're all, they're not there just by chance. They're there because there is some purpose for probably all of them. Um, which means there's a, there's a lot of things that could be studied if somebody wanted to go that direction. That begs the question, if you ask a cow, for how many days do you make colostrum? Um, I think it's going to be more than one. This is milkings, um, not uh, not days. So if you look at the first milking colostrum, you can see that, uh, you know, if we just look at IGF-1, 341, insulin at 65, back to the, the story we were just talking about with the concentration. Vitamin A uh, is, is very mitogenic here, so don't underestimate the role of vitamin A as, a, as acting like a steroid hormone. That uh, you can see in the second milking, IGF-1 is still quite high, and the third milking, IGF-1 is still quite high. Even though you see the lactose, you see lactogenesis taking place and the lactose concentration increasing because we're producing, the mammary glands producing more lactose, you can see that things like insulin and IGF-1 are still quite high, so we're into the second day, and I'll show you some data uh, later that uh, says it's probably about three or four days uh, that mom is making something. It's not about the immunoglobulins, it's about all the other factors that's in colostrum. All right, so if we look at the, the some of the literature that's out there, we know that colostrum is important for Ig and uh, supply and establishing passive immunity. There's a lot of nutrients in there, and we also, and that's the part that we always seem to fail to recognize that is the first meal that the calf receives. And depending upon the weather, the calf may really need those nutrients. They're, they have some adipose reserves, um, about about 4% empty body fat, which isn't a lot, and about 50% of that is brown adipose tissue. So they have a few days to support themselves, but those nutrients are really important, especially when it's cold. There's a lot of non-nutrient factors that support gut maturation. We talked, we just talked about IGF-1 and insulin. We know that there's specific receptors in the gut of the neonate that can stimulate cell proliferation, cell differentiation, and protein synthesis, right? So things like enzymes. There's evidence now 
good evidence that, that IGF-1 and insulin may stimulate enzyme secretion or enzyme synthesis in the gastrointestinal tract, which helps with digestion. It might also help with cell proliferation, which means we have a more robust uh, gastrointestinal tract, so we have a better uh, immune system since that's one of the primary barriers and primary immune uh, organs. So colostrum, in the end, is really a communication tool from the dam to direct uh, development at the beginning of extra uterine life, right? So are there any empirical studies that um, are out there that show, you know, just some of the growth effects? And this was published a long time ago now by some measure, 2005. Brown Swiss calves were provided two or four liters of colostrum and another few feedings over six to eight, but the, really the first thing was was the first feeding, or the first most important thing here. So two liters and four liters, not a lot of calves, 30-some calves, not too bad. That daily gain that you see there is actually pre-pubertal average daily gain, so all the way up to about 600 pounds. And you can see the calves that received more colostrum grew faster. It's hard to know what really happened on this study in that regard because they were all fed the same. They were all managed the same. The only thing that was different was how much colostrum they received. They all received the same starter, the same milk replacer, the same environment. Uh, they were all housed together. It's just those that received more colostrum grew faster. There were more survival, greater survival through the second lactation, and those that survived uh, made a little bit more milk. Right? So if those were 1,000 animals per treatment, now, all of a sudden, you could be making some, some estimates of, of survival curves, and you'd say, hey, 75, 750 animals survived versus 870. So if you're thinking about internal herd growth, that's a really big number, and that all happened um, just with the first feeding. Some data came out of Virginia Tech uh, a few years ago now. Um, this is over the first 29 days of life. They were investigating uh, calves fed mom's colostrum versus a serum-derived colostrum replacer. Most colostrum replacers we buy to replace the IGs, and in fact, this colostrum replacer did exactly that. There was no difference in IG status among the calves fed the cow's colostrum versus the colostrum replacer. They split the calves into two treatments, uh, with and without animal plasma. N is no animal plasma, P is plasma. Those treatments made no difference. There was no effect there. Um, the intakes are all the same, milk replacer and starter. What's important here are the feed efficiencies. The feed efficiency of the calves fed the colostrum was 0.4. The feed efficiency of those animals fed the colostrum replacer was 0.24. Right? But there was no difference in IG status. So the simple implication here is that there's something else in colostrum that's stimulating how the calves use the nutrients, which is why they, we saw more observed greater feed efficiency in those calves. A study out of Drakeley's lab, um, they looked at feed efficiency, um, similar to the previous study, but they did it um, by two different treatments. They had two different levels of nutrient intake. They had a conventional, which was a pound and a quarter of a 2220 milk replacer, versus an intensified study or treatment with uh, 1.75 pounds a day for the first week and up to two and a half pounds a day. For the rest of the time, uh, so so double more than yeah, doubling the milk replacer feeding rate, and they used a 28-20 milk replacer, and everybody received a 23% group protein starter. So you can see on the conventional uh, really fed calves, uh, didn't matter what the IG status was, right? Even though you see this uh, three times greater 
CRMIG uh, levels, concentrations, um, in milligrams per deciliter, 558 to almost 1,800, the average daily gain was the same, you know, just basically about 1.1 pounds a day. That's because those calves were fed just above maintenance, but not enough not enough nutrients above maintenance to really show us anything beyond uh, just basic growth or basal growth. But you put an intensified diet in front of those calves, and again, you see an even better response on this side. You see 609 versus uh, over 2,000, just over 2,000 milligrams per deciliter of IGs, so good absorption. And you see an average daily gain of 1.4 versus 1.6. Right? So those are significantly different. Uh, but you see that that was really all based on on uh, IG status. And I don't think IGs are important here. I think it, if you had higher IGs, you probably saw more of those other factors like insulin, IGF-1, estrogen, things like that. So, so it's not a focus on the IGs. It's a focus on everything else in the system. When you don't understand something, do the studies uh, to kind of re-ask the question. This was uh, one of Fernando Soberon's PhD studies. We had two treatments. I'm only going to talk about one because we restricted calves, and they were so restricted we didn't learn anything. We fed four liters, but we had a pooled colostrum, highly managed, you know, for bacteria counts and Ig concentration. It took six months to make the pool, so all the calves could receive the same thing. So four liters. Uh, plus two liters at 12 hours, or just two liters of pool colostrum within one hour after birth, right? And then they went on, in this case, all on an ad libitum diet. They were housed in a greenhouse barn on automatic feeders. We knew daily intakes. We had weekly measures of everything. Um, so high milk replace or high colostrum feeding rate, high milk replacer, low colostrum feeding rate, high low colostrum, and high feeding rate. So 36 and 20, 34 and 26 calves, IG concentrations, 2,700 milligrams per deciliter versus about 15. Yes, those are different. Again, I don't think this is about the IGs. In a perfect world, we would have supplemented these guys with a few IGs to make them equivalent. Uh, but 1,400, almost 1,500 milligrams per deciliter, these are really good calves, even by industry standards. We use birth weight as a covariate uh, in all of our analyses. The starting weight, uh, the birth weight's really important uh, to level out the, the calculations and control for that. The weaning weights, therefore, were significantly different at 172 versus 159. And you can see the average daily gain pre-weaning at 174 versus 148. So those calves that received more colostrum grew not quite three-tenths of a pound faster than those that only received two liters. We look at average daily gain out to uh, out to 80 days, so post-weaning, 172 versus 145. So maintaining that growth rate uh, post-weaning. Hip height was different. When hip height is interesting because that it's an, that in, that's an inference for bone growth, and bone is the slowest-growing tissue in the body. So to see those calves that received more colostrum be taller implies that there's more nutrients there or more hormones, whatever the case might be, growth factors to direct nutrient use. Milk replacer intake was significantly different, but it was only about six pounds, seven pounds. Intake uh, grain, not different. Uh, average daily of feed efficiency, not different. Average daily gain post-weaning, though, was really interesting. It started to look more like that Brown-Swiss study, 2.4, versus about 1.8 pounds a day. All right, so 
interesting. I wish we could have gone longer than 80 days, but we didn't have the space for it. And you can see the dry matter intake starting to open up. So those calves that received more colostrum grew faster all the way through. We're starting to eat more post weaning, right? So it'd been nice to be able to follow them. You know, this, again, this looked a lot like that, uh, that first study that I showed you. So more time would have been good on this study. So if we start to look, uh, so there's some of the empirical studies that show what this all looks like. Many studies have been conducted to demonstrate short-term responses to, to hormones and growth factors. A lot of those responses are enhanced protein synthesis, increased enzyme expression, greater gastrointestinal tract development. So the, the better the GI tract, the stronger barrier to infection, we'll have more surface area for digestion and absorption. And finally, we'll have more capacity to digest more nutrients due to higher enzyme secretion. Right? So you've got greater protein synthesis. Protein synthesis could be both cells or enzymes. So if we look at a, a series of studies along this line, here's, uh, here's one of the studies. Jörg Blum was a tremendous scientist, did dozens and dozens and dozens of these short-term, very intensive uh, studies looking at the mechanisms and the, uh, of colostrum and colostrum components. And here, uh, this is a study where they were looking at uh, BR, BRDU incorporation, which is a marker um, for cell proliferation. So you can see calves, and the red bar calves were fed a formula that looked like colostrum without all the, the growth factors. And then the calves fed colostrum. This is a day eight of life. And you can see the calves that were fed the colostrum had greater BRDU incorporation, which means we had more cell proliferation in the crypt cells. And those crypt cells would eventually develop so you'd have longer villi or more surface area. Right? And then what they did in a series of studies, so that's just colostrum versus formula. What they did is they took colostrum and they created an extract um, by uh, differential centrifugation. And you can see here, you know, the IGF-1, the insulin, the lactoferrin are highlighted. IGF-1 at 23 milligrams per kilogram, insulin at uh, 365 micrograms per kilogram. Uh, versus the colostrum at 1.1 and 67, right? So there's a higher concentration of things like IGF-1 and insulin in these extracts. And then they use these extracts on top of either a milk or a milk replacer uh, to find out what happened with growth. And, again, similar to the previous study, here's the formula and the formula or the milk replacer plus uh, the extract. And you can see that even in day eight, they add the extract to the formula, and, in fact, they get an improvement or uh, an increased amount of cell proliferation in the crypt cells in those calves. So that those growth factors are actually potent and they're working even at day eight. If you look at villus height, again, so you get better crypt cell growth, eventually you're going to get better villus height, so you get more surface area. Uh, milk replacer, milk replacer plus the extract, we see a significant difference in the villus height of those calves that were fed the milk replacer plus the extract. So there's bioactive, there's bioactive activity in that um, e extract that's stimulating the proliferation of the cells. All right, and do the same thing, milk replacer plus the extract at day five of life. Again, notice when this is occurring, a lot of this is happening day three, four, and five, and eight. So these, these, uh, activities, these cells are responsive to this a lot longer than I think everybody um, would would believe is normal. Well, this seems to be normal. And this goes back to the idea about 
how long does mom produce colostrum? So day five of life, we see more BRDU incorporation in the crib cells and the calves are the replacer plus the extract. So if you have more proliferation and you have more surface area and you have more enzymes, you should get higher digestibility or higher absorption. Right? So, so they looked at that. In fact, in this study from 2000, in those calves, they looked at xylose, which is a non-metabolizable uh, analog of glucose. And you can see in the, in the black triangles um, that, in fact, xylose absorption is greater in those calves fed the colostrum than those fed the formula, right? And that was an isonutrient formula. If you look at glucose, you can see the same thing. There's much higher uh, circulating glucose in those calves than those fed isonutrient than those calves fed the same uh, fed the formula, right? Suggesting that there's something in colostrum that's facilitating the transport of nutrients. So to follow that up, a paper was published, uh, lead author was Steinhoff Wagner, published in 2011. They, they looked at glucose feeding or classroom feeding and glucose uptake. A very nice, elegant study, very sophisticated. They used stable isotopes. We're not going to talk about that. They had uh, seven calves fed colostrum versus seven calves fed the milk-based formula, four hours on average after birth. The formula was comparable with micronutrient or macronutrient content. In other words, they wanted it to look just like colostrum. They took blood samples. We won't talk about the isotopes, but they did a nice job of balancing uh, the colostrum content and the formula. All right, so the formula day one, and you see here day one, day two, day three, and four. So if you look uh, here with the colostrum, you see the lactose at 201 grams per kilogram, 260, 341. Again, here, beautiful job, 201, 260, 338, basically. So a nice job with that. If you can look at protein and say the same kind of matching, for the most part, crude fat, very similar. Crude energy uh, looks really good. You know, it's hard to do this. But again, if you, you know, there's no, it's not going to be any growth factors in that formula, but there's a lot of IGF-1 just as one uh, key uh, growth factor. Um, there's a lot of IGF-1 in that colostrum. And you see they pooled the day three and four colostrum, and they still have 85 micrograms per liter in that particular uh, pool. And that's pretty good because, you know, in mature milk, it's, it's at one or less or less than one. So it suggests that mom's making colostrum or something that she thinks is colostrum for more uh, than for at least four days, right? So what happened? So if you feed this colostrum versus the formula in all the calves fed, um, the formula or the colostrum, you see higher circulating glucose out to 72 hours after birth, um, significantly different over time. And if we go out to day four, and this is kind of fun, this is changes on day four. So here's plasma glucose. Here's time at feeding. There's zero time at feeding. So just like here, we see more circulating glucose in the colostrum-fed calves compared to the formula. Even though the formula is isonutrient, you're still not seeing the same amount of glucose. Right? And we go two hours after feeding, and now we see a little bit of a rise in plasma glucose from the formula-fed calves. But look at the rise we see from the calves fed colostrum, and this is on day four. So we see this big jump in circulating glucose. 
all right, which always begs the question, so when glucose goes up, what should happen to insulin? Well, insulin should go up. Okay, so let's see what happens. So this is right from the paper. Um, so this is the day four of life where they're looking at time after feeding. So here's the insulin concentration at time of feeding, zero time, and they're pretty much identical. Nothing's – they haven't been fed. Two hours after feeding, we can see that the calves fed the formula, which are the white bars. Um, there is an increase in the insulin, right, which is what you'd expect after a meal. But notice the difference in the insulin concentration in the calves that were fed colostrum, right? It more than doubles uh, the level that you see in the calves fed the formula, right? This suggests two things. One, the calves are still making insulin. Two, the only way it can be that high is if they're absorbing the insulin out of the colostrum, okay? Now, when insulin goes up, what's supposed to happen to glucose? Glucose is supposed to go down. I kind of already alluded to this. If you look at the same thing again, I'm going back to the, the, the previous slide. Here's circulating glucose, day four of life, time of feeding. Yes, the calves fed the colostrum have higher circulating plasma glucose. Two hours after feeding, you see a much higher circulating glucose level in the calves fed colostrum versus the formula. Yes, it went up in the formula fed calves, not nearly to the degree that you see it in the colostrum fed calves. Fernando Soberone has very similar data, um, and it's a conundrum, right? Because glucose is supposed to go down in the face of high insulin, but in fact, the insulin stays up and the glucose is up. So this strongly suggests that there's something that colostrum has factors in it, maybe like insulin, that are facilitating the transport of glucose, but also being absorbed themselves. Because when they looked at the isotopic data, the calves continued to uh, produce insulin even in the face of um, this insulin intake, right? So that, that wasn't a negative feedback. So, again, the idea of anabolism. Mom is trying to do things for the calf to make it anabolic, and those calves fed colostrum are going to be much more anabolic than the calves that are fed the same nutrient profile from the same nutrients from the formula. Okay, and then back to the idea um, of what can happen with these growth factors and, and hormones and things like that. Here's a villus to crypt depth. Right, ratio, and you can see that the calves fed colostrum had greater villus height, right? And you can also see here that the calves fed uh, colostrum, for the most part, had greater lactase activity. So they had greater surface area, they had greater enzyme expression, greater capacity to digest nutrients, okay? So this is all working in concert to make the calf more anabolic. So from the study, we see that glucose uptake was increased. There was a similar nutrient supply. So something about insulin was insulin or enhanced enzyme activity in the gut or simply maturation in the gut allowed for greater glucose uptake. doesn't really matter. Better glucose status. Plasma glucagon was higher, so we had better reserve capacity. Plasma protein levels were higher, which means we weren't converting amino acids to, um, to just carbon, so there was less urea produced, which means there'd be more amino acids available for protein synthesis, right? Less protein converted to glucose, so less oxidation. 
again, when you don't understand something, go back and see if you can repeat it with the simplest possible test or study. We did this. Dan Lopez was an honor student many years ago. He's now a veterinarian and a small animal surgeon. So we lost him from the dairy industry, which is too bad for the dairy industry, but a, a great guy. At 12 calves um, at birth, they received an IV catheter, put a catheter in them, a juggler vein. Uh, we ran down to the local store, bought a bunch of Land O'Lakes colostrum replacer. We gave it to them about an hour and a half after birth on average. Half the calves received uh, the colostrum replacer with a uh, thousand IUs of human insulin, um, and the other half just received the colostrum replacer. And we were just simply trying to find out. Um, and yes, that's a lot of insulin. He he gave too much, but nobody uh, nobody was hurt. Um, we expected about 200 IUs, uh, not a thousand, but that's okay. But we just want to know: does insulin, if insulin was it was added to a colostrum replacer, would that impact? Um, insulin status or glucose status in the calf, right? So we, we sample blood for several hours, and here's what you find, right? So the green line on this graph is the calves received the colostrum replacer with no insulin. And again, they were refed at 12 hours, which is why you see it turning up. And then the blue bar are the calves that received uh, the colostrum replacer with the insulin. So you can see that insulin concentrations were being held at a very high level uh, for quite a while and then dropped down and then came back up again. And we really don't know. We stopped bleeding there for a while, so I don't know what that would really look like. But they still weren't as low as the control calves uh, out at 12 hours, right? And they responded um, with a greater increase once we gave them some more meal. So very nicely it says that the calves are, must be absorbing uh, the insulin out of the colostrum replacer. And if we look at the glucose levels, um, it becomes very obvious the insulin goes up, so 57 versus 85. The glucose on the control calves, about 70. On the treatment calves, about 81. So, again, um, adding something like insulin to a colostrum replacer, enhanced circulating glucose uh, over the first 12 hours of life. So that insulin was facilitating somehow that insulin was facilitating the transport of glucose across the gut. And the insulin was also getting across the gut. So, again, this, this one hormone, one dimension of everything that's in there, but it very nicely shows us that, um, that this can have a big impact and that one hormone has a tremendous amount of, uh, exerts a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, impact on these calves in terms of just insulin glucose status and and anabolic capacity. Now I'm going to change gears here and wind up with this. Uh, I'm running a little bit slower than I expected, uh, but I'll get through this real quick. This is, um, I was asked to review this a few years ago, a couple years ago, and uh, I think it's a fun story. And the question that was posed to me is what happens to immune cells in colostrum? And if I mention the word somatic cell, usually in, in dairy circles, that's a negative because we get penalized for too high of a somatic cell. And uh, that usually implies, you know, low-level um, infection and inflammation in the mammary gland. But in colostrum, a lot of those somatic cells are leukocytes. 
And the data generated over the last 20 years demonstrates that leukocytes and other immune cells in colostrum are trafficked into circulation in the calf. In other words, just like the colostrum or just like the insulin, uh, that these cells are getting through and into circulation. The question is, does this have any impact on the activity of the neonatal immune system or are there other implications? And there was a researcher at uh, Virginia Tech who was studying this, and she actually I was told the paper is finally published. I have to go find it. But she followed up a lot of this research and took the calves all the way out to lactation and found an altered immune system in those calves that saw more of these uh, leukocytes at birth, right? And I'll share with you what that data looks like. So if you review the literature, uh, what you'll find is that maternal leukocytes uh, can be detected in circulation within about 12 hours peak at 24 and, and supposedly disappear by about 48 hours. But the interesting thing is if you put all the data together, what you'll find is that those cells appear to be sequestered into tissues and lymph nodes after 48 hours and that they just, they didn't die. Um, they're still there. They just, um, they're just in other tissues and in lymph nodes. And in fact, you know, some of the data, some of the research would suggest that the cells have been measured up to five weeks after colostrum administration, right? That they're still there and they're still active. And, and the interesting thing is that there appears to be greater cellular immunity in calves that received whole colostrum compared to cell-free colostrum, right? And, uh, this, this may have long-term impacts on the robustness of the immune system of the calf. So if you look at uh, Reber et al. from 2008, they, they showed that calves fed whole colostrum had greater cellular immunity as defined by activation markers, uh, CD25 and 26, seven days after birth. They had greater antigen-presenting capacity on cell surfaces. They had greater cellular immune responsiveness to vaccinations. In other words, they acted as if they'd already seen some of those antibodies. All right, so this basically implies that mom that the transfer of these leukocytes from mom into the calf, the calf is absorbing them, so the mom is actually transferring message to the calf about how to respond to things that are not good for you. Right, and and one of the fun studies, and it's not talked about as much as I think it should, uh, this is Donovan's study by 2007, this is the truly the effect of maternal cells transferred with colostrum on cellular responses to pathogens, antigens, and neonatal calves. So the calves were fed whole colostrum, frozen colostrum, or cell-free colostrum within four hours after birth. Leukocytes were obtained from the calves before feeding colostrum and then out up to 28 days after ingestion. And this was the really fun part of it. Proliferative responses against VBD and mycobacteria protein derivatives were evaluated. This is the cool part. Dams received a vaccine containing inactivated BVD, but were not vaccinated, vaccinated against the mycobacterial antigens. So if those calves see those cells, have uptake of those cells, and those cells actually transfer any information, then the calf should, uh, should respond to a BVD challenge but shouldn't respond to a mycobacterial challenge because it would have never seen it. Okay. So what happened? 
Well, as you would expect, there was no IgEs in circulation at birth, but a lot by day one. Calves that received whole colostrum had enhanced responses to BBD antigen one and two days after ingestion of colostrum. They saw it. They got mom's message, right? Calves that received frozen colostrum or cell-free colostrum did not respond to BBD. No difference in mycobacterium challenge in all treatments. Take home, <laughs> yeah, this is fascinating to me. The uptake of cells from colostrum enhanced cellular immunity in calves by providing mature program cells from the dam. I find this truly fascinating that, that mom actually has the ability and the calf knows how to do this to take up fully mature leukocytes that have memory, have actually a full complement of DNA, and use them to defend themselves, right? So this has really, you know, from an epigenetic perspective, this opens up all sorts of doors in my mind about uh, what the capacity is for this next generation and building memory for the immune system and function. And again, like I said, there's been a study done that took them out to lactation and they saw the same kind of thing. Once the calves, once the animals calved in, they still had this type of memory that they were given right from the first couple of days of life. Okay. So where does that leave us? Our take home, most people groan when they see this. I say colostrum feeding for four days. Well, that doesn't mean we have to, you have to hold colostrum for four days or call it colostrum for four days. It's the same old thing. So first milking colostrum within six hours after birth, four quarts for a large breed cattle like Holstein's. First colostrum again, first milking colostrum at 12 hours. And there should be enough to get that second feeding in there. Two liters or two quarts would be plenty. The second milking colostrum. So we're still in day one or within 24 hours. We're just taking the second milking and we're going to give that to all calves that are two days of age. And the third and fourth milking, which would be day two, right, is going to give it, be given to calves for the, the calves that are less than four days of age. You know, we don't do blanket antibiotic treatments like we used to at dry off. Um, but, but, you know, the first two days of lactation, uh, we're almost always fed to calves or thrown out because we, couldn't feed it because of antibiotic withholding. There's not so much of that going on anymore. We've stopped a lot of that blanket treatment, uh, which makes this a little bit more difficult. And, and I'm, but what I'm suggesting is the same old approach as you take that first two days, if you're still withholding that, instead of just either dumping it down the drain or giving it to all calves, just give it to those calves less than four days of age, four days or less. All right, and that would be, uh, the way to get some of these bioactive factors into the calf, uh, everything, you know, and again, we're not talking about IGs. That's still, the IGs are focused on within six hours of birth. We're talking about all the other factors that might stimulate gut development, growth, and, and redirect nutrient use. Okay. So finally, mom is trying to send information to the calf via mammary secretions. I think in the dairy industry, some of our management approaches have short-circuited what I call this information flow. Mom's trying to do something for the calf, uh, but we don't recognize it because uh, we think about it just as fluid milk or something that we're going to sell or something that has no value other than maybe nutrients. Um, and that's probably not as good for the calf as it could be. Because we know we could be impacting intestinal development and nutrient supply independent of the nutrient composition of it. And we know enough now to say that colostrum can impact pre- and post-weaning feed efficiency or at least growth 
um, over the first, uh, over the first six to eight months of life. Um, and really mom makes colostrum for more than one day. And that has a lot to do with uh, impacts on calf development. So with that, um, I'll stop and take any questions. Okay. Thank you, Mike, for that presentation. If you in the audience have questions, please be certain to enter them in the chat window or in the question and answer tab. We will alternate questions from my webinar with those of our co-hosting countries. Before we go live and move on to questions, I'll introduce the next webinar and thank a few people. Next month, on April 11th, we'll be joined by Dr. Akira Sato from Zen Rakuren on automated calf feeding considerations. Akira has focused his research on the effects of intensive feeding on growth and performance. As with this webinar, there will be two opportunities to join, 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Now I would like to thank and recognize my co-hosts. The webinars are organized and produced by AMTS USA and Global. Our longtime collaborator is Paula Torillo of Athena, which hosts the series as El Webinar Del Nutritionista. She receives support from Technal, Vinis Cladin, Guillermo Lerman, and RR Lab in Argentina. Marcelo Hens Ramos, AMTS distributor and director of 3R Lab in Brazil, delivers the webinar to our Portuguese-speaking audience. Our AMTS distributor and director of Ansi Tech, Sean Lee, hosts the Mandarin language webinar platform. Tom Long of Hemingway, a quality hay supplier of forage from the U.S. to China, it also hosts the Mandarin language webinar from WeChat. We are joined by our AMTS distributors, Vadim Bakchevnikov of Novalab in Russia and Elena Bonfante from Dairy Innovations Italia of Italy. We are especially thankful for generous sponsors, making it possible for us to get great speakers and manage the program. We thank our gold sponsor this year, Arm & Hammer Animal Health, makers of cattle feed ingredients that optimize dairy cow health. Our silver sponsors are Ajinomoto Heartland, superior nutrition through amino acids, Dairyland Laboratories, Virtus, makers of strata with EPA, DHA, omega-3s, and prequel with omega-6s, Dairy One Forage Laboratory, and Jeffo, Life Made Easier. Our bronze sponsors are Amino Max, Purdue Agribusiness, Adiseo, Origination Inc., Nova Meal, Kemen, and PMI. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide. We hope that you consider them in your formulation decision. I will now finally open the floor up for questions. English language listeners, I will read your question. Remember to type your questions in the chat window or in the Q&A tab. And now let's switch over to our live question period. We have Mike and Elena joining us for any questions that you might have. I'm going to ask, Mike, I had some questions. Um, when you, right early in the beginning of the webinar, you mentioned benchmarks at body weight rather than as um, age as a reference. Do you have some suggestions of where people could go for those numbers or papers that they could look at? 
Sure. Um, let's see. The original values for those benchmarks, what we now call benchmarks, were published in a general dairy science paper in 1999 by Dan Fox, myself, and Tom Saluki. I thought so. <laughs> um, and then they were adopted uh, by the Dairy NRC in 2001. Uh, the only difference, the Dairy NRC didn't put all those numbers in there, but what they did do is they adopted the mature size concept. Uh, instead of using 82%, they used 85%. It's a little more conservative. It, it doesn't really matter. 82 is uh, the threshold. Uh, that's been verified by some work out of uh, Spain by Alex Bach. Their very independent data set, they came up with 81%. Um, it's now all part of the Dairy Calf and Heifer Association Gold Standards. Um, it's in every piece of literature written on heifers from everybody in the last 10 years. I, I can't even remember where everything's at now, but the Dairy Calf and Heifer Association, the Gold Standards, uh, use all of those values. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, I know it's out there, but um, some of the people that we – deliver to don't necessarily immediately look towards those places. Right. So that's where they're at. Okay. Um, could you speak a little bit about how well do colostrum replacers hit some of these measures or some of, some of the factors that you were looking at? That's a good question. Um, the colostrum replacers they're pretty, do an awesome job with IgGs. Um, it's a mixed bag on the non-Ig components, uh, some of those bioactive factors that I was talking about or speaking to. Um, the whole milk or the whole colostrum products have some of those factors in them, um, and we've been evaluated that a little bit, not enough that I feel comfortable publishing a paper, but we've looked at it. Um, casually, I'd say, and, uh, you know, we can measure insulin in the colostrum replacer. Uh, we can measure, that's really the one we've looked at. We've looked at a couple others, but the one I feel comfortable with is, uh, is insulin. And there is some in there, and I'm assuming because we can analyze it, it's bioactive. Um, uh, because most of those, that second, most of those colostrum replacers are second and third milking, um, colostrum, so they should be high in those, those factors. Um, there are some colostrum replacers that have been modified um, with other things added, uh, some fat extracted, things like that. Those those are a little bit different, so I don't see a lot of those factors in those uh, products. Okay, I just switched slides to um, – it's not very clear, is it? Um, I switched slides to see if we could highlight that, if it's an easier talking point. Yeah, just – you know, the, 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 you know, the easiest one to measure in all of that is, is insulin. And, um, like I said, in some of the colostrum replacers, we do find intact insulin and measurable levels, uh, but not in all the colostrum replacers. And I think it depends on if it's a, a whole colostrum, whole col dried colostrum, or if it's a processed colostrum somehow and they've just extracted out the IGs, which is what some of the companies are doing. Okay. Be aware. And I don't want to name names. <laughs> right, right. Um, do you, let's see. I have a question um, 
in the in the question wind, window, um, should we still be using 55% of mature weight as a minimum breeding frame size, and what should we use for height at weaning and breeding? Mm. Yeah, you still want to use 55% as your entry point. You know, we want to be you want to have heifers pregnant by about 65% of mature size. Um, but if I tell people 65%. We, we do a terrible job of monitoring heifers, right? Most dairies don't weigh heifers. Uh, they might do it every once in a while. They definitely look at stature, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but if you say 65% is where you want to get them pregnant, then it'll be 75% or better until this all happens. So I always I start earlier because if we start at 55%, most people underestimate the size of the heifers. So if they think they're 55%, they're probably already 65, 60 or 65%. So um, start earlier so we can get that accomplished. Um, in terms of stature, um, I, I, there, I will probably never provide stature recommendations because I can't find good correlation. If you look at, and I don't have the graphs in here, and that's a different talk, but if you look at stature of heifers versus body weight, there's a correlation. Um, there's a correlation, but there's a, quite a variation. There's less variation around stature than there is around body weight. So you can have heifers that will have the same hip height, but could vary by 100 pounds or better, or 50 kilos in body weight. So um, we've measured all that. At one point, we could publish it, um, but, but I, I will never probably make, personally, will make recommendations on that because uh, puberty is independent of stature. It's really a function of body weight. It's a function of body composition and body fat. Um, so I don't, I know that's not satisfactory to a lot of people, but biologically, I can't make a case for, for a height measurement. Okay, thanks, Mike. Um, Elena, would you like to ask your uh, question or two? Let's see if... Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Hi, Mike. Ciao. Ciao. So, um, talking about the height and the weight, uh, so is it still uh, better to uh, estimate the body weight based upon the um, uh, tape instead of uh, measuring the height, correct? Yes. So my answer to that would be yes. I would still okay. want it. I would still rather tape an animal than just use a stature. Okay. No, that's good because, uh, for example, sometimes it's uh, an easy, you know, uh, it's, it's easier to just uh, point uh, uh, a sign in the wall just to say, okay, when it's uh, that high, you can start breeding, but... Uh, Probably focusing on the tape. If you don't have the scale, it's a better suggestion, I guess. Okay. Um, another question, can, Mike. Let me, Elena, just a second. You can use yeah. stature. You know, if somebody wants to use stature as an indicator of a time to go weigh them or tape them or identify them, yeah. I'm okay with that. You know, if you, oh. whatever metric you want to use to say, hey, I better pay attention to this group of animals. That, I'm fine with that. I just, I, there's, I cannot come up with a measure of stature that relates to any, any, uh, physiological outcome. Okay. No, and we can see yeah. that. Here's my analogy. 
there's a lot of humans out there that are, you know, one and a half meters, right? And there's some others that are, you know, two meters. You know, who do we decide gets is allowed to breed based on their height? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. No short people can breed. Yeah, well, that's uh, I, and I make a joke about that in class. I'll have I'll have the boys stand up. I'll pick the shortest guy in the class and the tallest guy in the class, and I'll say, okay, if the shortest guy has to be as tall as the tallest guy, he's never going to reproduce. You're brutal, right? Well, but it, it just makes the yeah. Well, it's fun, but yeah. the kids get it. But it, it makes the point that stature is a really bad indicator of of these things. But it could be a marker for, for saying, hey, i got to pay attention. Exactly. It's, um, it's a tool that can be uh, uh, applied. Right. Okay. Another question. Um, um, article I think you wrote uh, about the um, free wing, uh, uh, average daily gain, the correlation uh, with the first uh, lactation, the production in first lactation. Yes. And, um, okay, uh, so I would like to understand uh, which where, which is the control uh, group. So um, how did you make the comparison in the pre-winning period? Mike, do so you know which slide that is? Um, I don't even know if that's in this slide set. Okay, this is this it? No, this is this slide set's all about colostrum. Okay. I think people are asking questions outside the slide set, and that's okay. So in the, because I don't think there's anything in here about average daily gain and milk yield. No. Right, but that's the question that Ellen is asking. So to that uh, to that person who's asking that, how did we have a control group? In the data that we analyzed, if it's the Soberone paper. We had 10 years of data. We measured the growth rate of every calf on the farm. We knew their intake. So we had everybody's growth rate. Okay. Right? So what we used, we simply just used all the data, and then, but we used very sophisticated math. What the reader has to recognize is that we used the same mathematical tools that you would use to do a sire summary, to do a genetic analysis. So okay. we, we accounted for season, we accounted for year, we accounted for all the variables that any geneticist would account for when calculating a heritability or, or predicted transmitting ability. And then we did the math, and then we went back and looked at the calf values. Uh, I got it. Okay. That's how we did that. We didn't have a control, a direct control and a direct treatment. We just had 10 years of data on 1,200 calves. But – all that information, we knew everything about them, right? That, and that was the key. But we also used a different mathematical approach to make sure that we accounted for any bias. Yeah, and we actually tested for that and published that in the paper. Um, in the in the all the other data that we analyzed for the meta-analysis, we compared those. A lot of those were prospective studies where they had a control. So we just uh, used the we just used the difference between the controls and the treatments. Okay, so it was uh, uh, below and, um, uh, oh, my God, higher or, 
or lower than a certain uh, average daily gain, something like that. Yes. Okay. Thank you, thank you. Elena, do you have any more questions? Uh, no, I'm fine with that so far. Okay. I have a couple questions. Um, one from Carlos. He says, is there a relationship between the amount of colostrum and reproductive performance when they are cows? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there are no data at this point that I'm aware of looking at um, anything related to colostrum and any other, um, any other physiological outcomes other than growth and health. Okay. I have a fun one for you. If, and this is a person speaking, if I want to look like Arnold, should I put colostrum on my Wheaties? Is there a market opportunity for the dairy industry here? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a fun question. Uh, if you want to look like Arnold, um, so, is there a market opportunity? I think the answer is yes. Um, if you were to read the human, if you were to read the literature on the human side, you would find out there's a population of humans that do consume colostrum, um, and they happen to be uh, Olympic athletes. Um, there are a lot of athletes that consume colostrum because of all those bioactive factors. Uh, there's actually a, a more rich literature on colostrum and other physiological outcomes in humans. Um, there's uh, actually, if you were to take the time and actually know how to search, there's a robust uh, data set on colostrum and cancer in humans um, and, and actually positive effects of colostrum on cancer. And I learned that over the last 10 years. Uh, by studying some of this and just looking for information and actually had some of it given to me. Um, is there a market uh, potential? The answer is yes. Um, you can, there are several sources of colostrum out there right now that you can purchase for humans. Um, and uh, some of it's high IG, some of it's just the colostrum components. Um, anybody wants to write me. Uh, I'll share with you where you can find some of that. Um, you got to be careful of where you buy it because some of it is probably not as well managed as you'd like, and it's probably a little higher in a E. coli than you would like. Uh, but there's some very good products on the market. Mike, how do those um, products survive, and colostrum in general, survive things like pasteurization, the bioactive factors? Um, I One of your slides indicated less response in, um, oh, golly, I could find that slide pretty readily. I think you know which one I mean. It generated a question. Um, as long as, yeah, so the, 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 the key there is the pasteurization process has to be uh, low temperature. And, and I think most of the colostrum that's dried is, is freeze-dried anyhow, uh, so that would be good. That would preserve those bioactive factors. Uh, Sandra Guyton uh, and I, I think she's got this published in one of the journals, maybe in a, something related to AABP. Uh, Sandra Guyton um, and I had this conversation many years ago, so she sent me her pasteurized colostrum samples versus the uh, unpasteurized samples we analyzed 
uh, both sets, and we look for um, IGF-1, insulin. I think we actually measured somatotropin. We measured five hormones. I don't remember all of them right now, uh, but they were all pretty much intact. So I think as long as you adhere to the 50-50, uh, sorry, 60-60 schedule, so 60 degrees Celsius for 60 minutes, as long as your pasteurizer does not exceed that temperature, then all those bioactive factors are taken care of. Okay. Thank you. And that, that was an additional question that we sure. had. Um, yeah. After colostrum feeding period of four days, what would your recommendations be for feeding milk replacer? How much milk replacer would you feed on day four or five? What composition would you recommend? Um, yeah. So that's the, the question is, is what growth objectives do you have and what kind of weather are you doing this in? Uh, so, cause the way I would think about this is not about a volume. I would ask question. I would, my question would be, you know, is it, uh, I'm not sure where everybody's at here. Is it zero degrees Celsius or 30 degrees Fahrenheit? Um, or is it 68 degrees Fahrenheit and 15 degrees Celsius? Um, if it's 15 degrees Celsius, then um, I'm probably going to stick with six. I'm, I'm going to stick with six liters at uh, 15% solids if I'm feeding this out of a bucket or a bottle. Uh, and I'd have to do the math on that, but um, um, anyhow, about a, about uh, about 750 to 800 grams of, of dry matter. And then uh, I'd hold that for about five days, and then I would uh, move them up to uh, I'd move them towards uh, a kilo or better of, of dry matter a day in, in three feedings. And if it's cold outside, I'm going to calculate the maintenance requirements, and I'm going to make sure I met the maintenance requirements, and I'm going to make sure there's an allowance there for growth. And I, I can't do that off the top of my head um, while we're on the on the phone here, so to speak, but I could get somebody a number. I could send you some data. So, so to me, this is a question of what do you want? What's your growth rates? What's your maintenance requirements? And then how do you, what do you need to do to accomplish your growth objectives? Um, so it's not a volume calculation. It's actually how many MCALs and how many grams of protein. The requirements, you know, we're, we're feeding calves in our system for at least a kilo, kilogram per day gain. Um, so we're feeding something in the uh, in the summertime that's at least 26% protein and probably more like 28. We don't feed whole milk. We feed milk replacer. Um, the fat in the summertime or when it's warm out, 15 to 20% fat is fine. In the wintertime, um, the last few years, we've been feeding a 30% um, protein milk replacer with 32% fat. Probably isn't quite the number that I would want, but it actually works really well and it, it uh, provides plenty of energy. But we've we've fed a 2820, we've fed a 2815. Again, you just got to get your volume um, correct, right? But we're we're moving our calves in the direction. In the first few days, I'm probably going to limit them to 700 to 750 grams after I feed colostrum, but then I'm going to move them quickly to at least a kilo. And then depending upon their intakes and growth rates, I'll, I'll advance that from there. How's that? Hello, everyone. How are you tonight? Or this morning? 
Good. Everybody can hear you. Um, first off, um, better for worse. <laughs> thanks for joining us, Mike. Um, this is your second time with questions, and um, we'll cover some of the ones that we had this morning if if we don't get them asked tonight. But I think if Paula can ask, start off asking the first question, um, she has some. Paula, do you want to ask or do you want me to ask them for you? Hi, Marianne. I can ask her first Good. if you want. Go. Okay. Hi, Mike. Nice to be with you again. Hey, I, have, uh, hi. I have a couple of questions. Uh, the first one is from Ivana. She wants uh, to know what do you mean by whole colostrum, if you can explain us a little bit more. Sure. So in, that, in those particular studies where that work was conducted, they tested uh, colostrum that was intact, as in right out of the cow, or they tested colostrum that had been frozen. Frozen colostrum would have, so when we're talking about the leukocytes, those leukocytes would die or, you know, burst actually in the freezing process, so they would not be intact. So that would not be considered whole colostrum and or cell-free colostrum where they had actually uh, spun the, the cells out of the colostrum and then fed it. So whole colostrum would simply be colostrum as it's uh, harvested from the cow. That's the difference. Uh, okay, okay. The next question was about the characteristics that are that are affected by the freezing the colostrum and heating it to to give it to the heifers to the calves. Yeah. So for for the the bioactive factors in the colostrum, freezing um, is fine. Pasteurization is fine. So as long as you adhere to the 60 degrees Celsius for 60 minute program that Sandra Godden has put together and the temperature on your uh, pasteurizer doesn't rise, you know, maybe 61, 62, but not much above that because you want a tight range or tolerance around that temperature. Uh, all those bioactive factors will remain um, available. If you heat it up above 61 degrees, basically, yeah, yeah, 61 degrees, you'll denature the proteins and you'll create cheese, right? The, 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 uh, colostrum really will curdle. So for the most part, any temperature beyond, uh, any temperature that will denature the proteins will destroy, um, the, uh, the bioactive factors. Okay, Paula is going to work on some more questions that she has coming in. Mike, I have sort of a follow-up to the discussion that you're having with um, pasteurizing the colostrum. For years and years here, we've been having the recommendations to freeze colostrum from the best cows. Uh, what does that, what, what do the bioactive in, um, factors say to that? Oh, uh, they're fine. Bioactives, the, the, the bioactives, the hormones do fine freezing. Um, it's the cells. The only thing that, that we would worry about, and I don't worry about this, I'm still going to tell everybody to pasteurize your colostrum uh, because those leukocytes, even though I talked about that, there's not enough information yet um, 
to suggest that we have to worry about that maybe in five or ten years when we get a little bit more data or somebody generates the right kind of data, we'll say, okay, we've got to figure out how to get these leukocytes into into the calf so they can be absorbed by the calf because it, it has a long-term impact on, on productivity. Other than that, the bioactive factors, for the most part, survive the freezing and thawing process as long as our temperature range, uh, as long as the temperatures never go above 60 degrees Celsius, and is you know, and for the most part, as long as they weren't frozen for more than three or four months, you know, if you leave colostrum in the freezer for 12 months in, in a normal freezer, one of the things that everybody forgets is that a, a frost-free freezer uh, goes through heating and thawing cycles. So that's why the frost, that's why it's frost-free. While it does that, uh, it will that that colostrum in a frost-free freezer. Uh, those bioactive factors probably can be denatured a little bit simply by that process. So we don't recommend that they stay in the freezer for very long to maintain that. Okay, thank you. Um, I have, let's see, one clarification for those those that we have joining us outside of the U.S. Uh, there was a question, what does DOA mean? And that's a colloquialism that isn't necessarily translated to everyone. It means dead on arrival. So um, when you referenced in one of your early slides, there was Um, a number of DOAs. And I should have known that because I had a question from Paula when she was doing the translating. Um, So a question that I have is, given all of these bioactive factors, do you have any idea how they rank in terms of importance? (laughs) um sure i think you know this is based on the information that we have available now i would say that the top two for the moment would be insulin and igf1 um is everything else important most likely do we have enough data to tell us how they act and where they act uh the answer is no but i am very aware and we have good data to demonstrate the role of IGF-1 and insulin on protein synthesis and glucose metabolism and glucose absorption and things like that. Okay, thank you. So, yeah. I have a fun one for you um, because this, I remember you talking a little bit about the work that Katie Hines did with um, the, the, the dam or the mother tailoring her milk to what the fetus is, the the sex of the fetus in in primates. Um, This is a question from Tom Long in China. Does the colostrum identify the mom-calf pairing at all? And if it does and such, may it work better for her own calf? That's a really good question, Tom. my general, my answer is it doesn't have to come from, as we understand it right now, it does not have to come from the mom. We don't know enough about genetics and and the interactions um, with some of those components in colostrum to say there's a, there's a mom-baby, there's a mom-baby link. Um, but what I do tell people is if you, if, what I am would be more concerned about is the environmental factor involved in what mom has been exposed to 
what she's going to put into the colostrum and how that's going to impact um, the calf. So in other words, getting colostrum in a calf from a dam that was on the farm, I think is really important. Does it have to be the same, the mom and baby pair? The answer I think is no. So I just want to make sure if we're really being precise about this, the, the uh, advantage is probably always to colostrum that comes from a cow on the farm because that cow has been involved or exposed with anything in the environment that they, they, it's local to that farm. Okay, thank you. Um, Paula, do you want to ask your questions, or do you want um, me to read the ones that you've put in the chat window? Uh, I, I, can, I can tell Mike the questions. Okay, good. I know you're busy because you're down a translator or two. Okay, thanks. Uh, the third question is from Uruguay. Uh, could you tell us what colostrum extract is? Sure. Colostrum extract is, uh, is, is made through centrifugation. Well, it can be made a couple of different ways. It can be made through ultrafiltration, or it can be made through centrifugation, differential centrifugation. Um, so that's simply just removing the high molecular weight components like the fats and, and some of the other, some of the higher level proteins. And then uh, what you're left with are what I would call the low molecular weight proteins. And so that would be an extract. Okay, great. Uh, the fourth question is from Pedro. Based on your results, would it be useful to add insulin to the colostrum to feed the calf? Would you repeat the question? I'm sorry. Yes, of course. It, uh, based on your results, would, do you think it would be useful to add insulin to the colostrum to feed the calf? Oh, yeah. Yes, well, I think the answer to that is yes. I think adding, having more insulin in the colostrum is useful. Having insulin in the colostrum is useful by itself. More seems to be better. That's a difficult thing to do for most people, um, and I haven't really considered it as a standard practice but the data that we generated and the data that exists uh, strongly point to the role of insulin in facilitating glucose transport out of the gastrointestinal tract and into circulation. Okay, great. May I go on, Marianne? Yeah, Paula, why don't you ask your um, next question, and then I've got a couple that I can ask. Okay, great. Um, I have a question from Martin. What are the results of using colostrum replacers with immunoglobulins from blood plasma. So colostrum replacer made from plasma or serum, either one, um, those IGs, they have learned how to manage that colostrum or that uh, serum or, or blood components very well. Those IGs are very bioactive, very available. So in terms of a colostrum replacer, uh, replacing immunoglobulins, they're highly effective. And if that's what we're trying to do, you know, highly recommended. They're a great product. One of the things that we don't have in those products are the, uh, 
a lot of the bioactive factors, right? Because what they've done is they've isolated the immunoglobulins out of the serum or the plasma, um, but they don't have all those other bioactive factors in there. So that that is the one thing that's missing. And there was a slide that the, the study from Virginia Tech, the Jones study that I referred to, is a good example of that, where the calves received um, identical amounts of IgEs that absorbed it and had the same Ig levels in circulation, but had a feed efficiency that was, you know, about uh, 50%, not quite 50% of the calves that received the colostrum from the dam. Okay, I'm trying to pull that up, Mike, but I don't, I don't know that I can find it real quickly. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. Um, let's see. I have a couple questions. This is one from um, Tom Long in China. He asks, would you just sort of go over again, what are the key elements in handling colostrum the first 12 hours after calving? Sure. The key elements to colostrum management the first hours after calving is uh, we want to get the cow into a clean environment and we want to sanitize the teats, and we want to remove the colostrum. We want to milk the colostrum out um, as fast as, as, as efficiently as possible. It's important that, uh, you know, cleanliness is maintained. We want to minimize any bacterial contamination because at this point the calf, even though the calf has probably been exposed to some of mom's bacteria during the birthing process, we're trying to minimize um, any exposure to possibly uh, pathogenic bacteria, which is why the teeth have to be cleaned and the milking equipment has to be cleaned. As soon as the colostrum is evacuated from the cow, uh, we really need to focus on getting that colostrum into the calf because the colostrum is fresh. Uh, one of the things that I see happening is when people harvest the colostrum, it's it's warm, it's left in a warm environment, um, and it's left to sit for a few hours. And colostrum is like all all milk products; it's going to come out with a certain amount of bacteria in it. Um, if those bacteria are given a chance to grow, um, what's going to happen is now we're going to feed um, a very high bacteria count colostrum to those calves, and that that actually has there's two problems there. The first problem is, is that we inoculate the calf with uh, a bunch of possibly potentially dangerous bacteria or pathogenic bacteria. But the second problem is, is that the gut will seize those, will sense those bacteria, and the channels that are used for pinocytosis of the uh, immunoglobulins will actually close. So the higher the bacteria count of the colostrum and the more bacteria the gastrointestinal tract sees, uh, the less immunoglobulin absorption that we have and the efficiency uh, is really decreased which is why cleanliness is very important and also speed is very important because the longer the calf is out of mom, the, the, you know, the longer it's standing there, uh, the more exposure it's going to have to, you know, bacteria in the environment, whether it's getting it from the bedding or touching anything else in the facility, which is why we have to get the colostrum in there fast so we make sure that our absorption is maximized and our efficiency is as high as possible. Okay, thank you, Mike. Um, I have a question from Carlo Rossi. He says, hi, Mike. Ah. <laughs> no, Carlo. <laughs> Do you have any data about TNF-alpha and IL-6 as, anti as an anti-inflammatory effect on calves' gut? 
No. Great question. Carla would be the kind of guy to ask that question. Um, and the answer is no. There's, there's no information right now on the anti-inflammatory effects of those colostrum components on the gut. But it is a good question. There's a, you know, as I tell people, this doesn't answer the question, Carla, but it, it, as I tell people, you know, I'm at an age where I'm not thinking about retirement, but there's only so many things I can get done in my career yet. If I was starting over and I could find the money, this is probably one of the most fruitful places that a scientist could spend time because the interactions here between mom and baby and all these factors in the gut and development, um, there's 20 or 30 years of research that could be done just on this topic. And that's that question is actually one of the good ones. There are lots of things in colostrum that we know are affecting the calf. We just don't, there's no data. Okay. Paula, do you want to ask some of your questions? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, good. I have a question from Juan Manuel. What do you think about adding antibiotics to colostrum replacer? I would never do that. No, you don't want to add any antibiotics to colostrum replacer. Um, you don't want to do anything that's going to um, – the, the problem with that is that the moment you put antibiotics in there, any of the bacteria that mom delivered to the calf, it may be really important, those early bacteria, anything that is in the colostrum replacer or colostrum that stimulates the, the colonization of good bacteria – you're gonna you're gonna take away all of that effect. So that I would say that was that would probably be the last. I would never do that unless I knew I had a real problem. Uh, but then I would I would never try to use antibiotics. I'd always try to figure out where the where the the bacteria are coming from that's causing the problem. Okay. And, and just re, just remember that there's components in colostrum that actually cause uh, a laxative effect. So high amounts of colostrum are going to actually cause um, you know, a bowel movement and loose manure in the meconium to be excreted. So there's that. That's okay. You know, if you're getting scours, um, then there's something else going on. Okay, Paula, keep keep going. Do you have more beyond your question seven? Yes. Okay. No. Yes, number eight. Okay. Let's go with number seven. This is from Jorge. Which additives would you recommend to add to the colostrum to improve the gut of the of the calf? Um, I wouldn't add anything to colostrum. I would just feed more colostrum. Yeah, colostrum is pretty good just the way it is. You just want to make sure you get more colostrum into the calf. Okay, um, the last question I have is from Juan. What can you tell us about using beta-glucans in calves? About beta-glucans? Yes. Um, yeah, so beta-glucans are okay. Um, I, there are so many beta-glucans available that for me to make a blanket statement is very difficult because there there's a very wide variety of them out there. Um, in general, beta-glucans in a calf after about four or five days of life, again, this, you don't want any beta-glucans in your colostrum or colostrum replacer. 
but in the milk replacer or in the milk added to the milk, they have beneficial effects on the gastrointestinal tract. They may help bind certain um, toxins. Uh, they may help facilitate the growth of good or commensal bacteria. Um, they may help um, do do lots of positive things. But again, some of that is specific to the type of beta glucan, so you need to know what to look for. And I'm not really prepared to go through the list of all of that right now, uh, right off the top of my head. But there are there are you know quite a variety of beta glucans out there. Okay, Paula, I have a couple questions. Um, Tom Long says, and this will give you, we had this question this morning, um, are there people powdering cow colostrum for humans? And the answer to that is yes. There are people, you can buy, at least in the U.S., you can buy colostrum um, and, and take it yourself. Uh, if you read the literature, uh, the, the largest human population that takes colostrum appears to be uh, Olympic athletes because it has all of these fact, growth factors in it and it's not a banned substance by the ILFC. Uh, but there's a rich literature on colostrum in humans. And if you take the time and you know how to search, there's actually a very rich literature on colostrum having very positive effects on cancer. Um, in humans, but it's, it's one of those things that is researched in a very strange way because it's not one of those products that, that companies are going to produce and, and make billions of dollars on, and it's very hard to get, you know, uh, the right kind of, of, of research done to make sure that it gets into the medical community in a, uh, like a regular pharmaceutical film. So, but there is a rich literature on colostrum in humans, and I would encourage anybody to go start reading on that because I'm always amazed at what I learned. Um, and it's really interesting to find out how much work has truly been done. But it, it's, uh, it's not well described. Okay, thank you. Um, I have one, let's see, <laughs> Tom, Tom Long says, wow. <laughs> so... Um, I have one more question, and if we don't get any other questions in the chat window or from Paula, it might be the last question. Um, how does butyrate fit into this space, given what we know about its role in gut development and health? Yeah, so, so butyrate's a post-colostrum uh, thing, and it, you know, butyrate's really a function of how much sugar does, it, does a calf consume. Um, so butyrate's really important. Adding butyrate to the diet, some of these calcium butyrate products really don't look like it works that well. Some of us have started to review that literature. There's positive effects, uh, but not really dramatic because I just don't think we put enough butyrate in with some of these products. What we really need to do is build starters that are high in sugar um, and not as high in starch. And uh, if you think about a pasture grass, pasture grasses are quite high in sugar. And, uh, you know, 15 to 20, 22% sugar in a pasture grass, and that's what the calf would eat if it was uh, walking along and suckling on mom. Uh, so as we get more sugar in there, we get more butyrate production, and that is going to stimulate a tremendous amount of gut growth and development. So I would suggest that we focus more on how do we build the right kind of diets um, to get dry, you know, dry diets to get the, the butyrate development in the room. And that's really what I think we should focus on. 
and we're doing some of that work right now with a couple of my grad students, but uh, don't have time to talk about that now. Okay. All right. Thanks, Tom. Or th- thanks, Mike. Um, I think that we don't have any more questions. Um, Paula and Tom, thank you both for joining us. Mike, thank you for joining us twice today. Um, and everybody who attended, thank you very much. Um, I guess we'll say say goodbye, and everybody says goodbye, and thank you, Mike.